This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Welcome to the Understanding the World Around You seminar stream. Um, if that's not where you thought you were, please feel free to go and be wherever you're supposed to be. But this is the Understanding the World Around You. You'll see in your handbook it says that Martin Charlesworth is hosting this seminar stream. I am not Martin Charlesworth. Um, we look a little bit different. He's quite a lot taller than me. Um, Martin is actually at West Point, which is another New Frontiers camp that's taking place this weekend. He will be here um, for his session, obviously, but he's given it to me. I'm Natalie, and I work with him at Jubilee Plus. He's asked me to host this morning's session. Um, I'm really excited that we've got David Westlake with us, who's the CEO of IJM. I had the privilege of going to Cambodia with IJM last year, which was absolutely amazing to see the phenomenal work they are doing out there from helping um, people, who perpetrators, to be arrested right through to the aftercare of slavery survivors. I obviously don't want to steal his thunder. He's going to tell you a lot about it. Um, I just do want to add, though, as well, that it was really interesting for me. So I went to Cambodia saw um, what's happening to tackle slavery in one of the furthest places away from where I live in Hastings, but then came back and within three weeks I was out with my local police taking some journalists on a raid to find some perpetrators and just three doors down from where I live they found 11 victims of modern slavery. So this is happening not just around the world but in our communities as well. So I know there's... um, stands you can go and visit from IJM and from Hope at Home, please do that. But without going on for too long, why don't we give a really, really warm welcome to David Westlake, who's going to come and speak to us. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, just out of interest, how many of you, before you saw it on the, on the program, how many of you had heard of International Justice Mission? Just put your hands up. Put your hands up high. Go on, everybody else, look at the people with their hands up. Keep your hands up, be proud. Everyone else, look at the beauty that surrounds you. The people with their hands up are the ones going to heaven. <laughs> but it's not too late for you to join them. You can, uh, you can do that. Um, it's really great to be here um, and to take part in this. A little bit about me. Um, that's me and my wife, Minu, and our uh, 16-year-old daughter. That's from a couple of years ago, that photo. But our 16-year-old daughter, who's not here, because if she was here, I wouldn't be allowed to show that photo. I'd be provided with a photo suitably filtered, tinted, cropped, Instagram-ready to uh, share. And I lead um, International Justice Mission here in the UK. Um, we're a we're a, a group of people around the world, the largest anti-slavery organization in the world. When the world was young, I was a youth worker in inner London and a church planter with a church um, movement called Ichthus Christian Fellowship. And um, Mina and I met doing that. I helped set up Soul Survivor and were, for 20 years was with um, an organization called Tear Fund and was uh, international director in the end, at Tear Fund. So I need to um, give a little bit of a health warning um, about the next uh, hour or so. Uh, we're gonna, um, gonna share some stories that will be sad. We're gonna share some stories that will be very joyful. 
we will also have some geeky moments of statistics and deep understanding about how we can end slavery. So just to warn you, if you are averse to crying, hold on, there'll be a happy bit. If you want to be moved, you'll get that. And if you crave evidence and numbers, there'll be a moment just for you, okay? So trying to cover um, all the bases. If we solved slavery in Europe, the UK, we'll separate those out for the moment. If, uh, if we solved slavery for Europe, the UK, North America, and Australia, we would have solved slavery for 1% of the world's slaves. 99% of the world's slavery happens in poorer countries, in Latin America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in the Indian subcontinent. So we're going to focus a little bit about on those issues and in those places. There is, sadly, more slaves in the world today than in any other time in history. More slaves today than through the transatlantic slave trade. But I'm going to show you how we can join a rescue party, how every single one of us can join the front line of the fight against slavery. At least 40 million people are slaves today. At least 40 million people are held in slavery today. And uh, a friend of mine in America, so hence the accent, made a little film to show to his church, um, his, his network of churches in America, about slavery. So we're going to watch that. We have operations all over the world, rescuing people from slavery. Because today there are criminals who abuse children, sell girls. How old is she? 12. 12? How much? Until they are free families into slavery. Criminals prey on the easiest target, the world's poor, because they expect no one to defend them. But today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. 
And together, we form the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. But slavery won't come to an end until criminals know they can't get away with it. So we partner with local police to arrest and prosecute criminals. This sends a message to slave owners. We will not go away. We stay with the survivors until they are healed. Until they are Natuluan po ako ng IJM sa pamigitan po na sa case ko, sa pagtulong po nila na ma-overcome ko po yung, yung fear. Each year, we rescue thousands of slaves and protect millions around the world. We are transforming how justice systems protect their citizens. To those who are still enslaved, we promise to find you. We will get you home to your families so you can have the freedom you deserve. We'll be together uh, about 75 minutes in this, uh, in this workshop. And in the next 75 minutes, or in this 75 minutes, 150 children will be sold around the world. That's 150 children this 75 minutes, and another 150 75 minutes after that, and the 75 minutes after that, and so on, and so on, and so on. And they're sold into brick kilns and brothels and sweatshops. And we know that children don't belong in those places. We know that children belong in families and playgrounds and schools. But while we're sat here, 150 children will be sold. And God knows all their names. Our Father has plans for every single one of them, plans to give them a future and a hope, plans to bless them just as he plans to bless us as we are gathered here this weekend. But 150 of them, while we're sat here, will experience nothing but abuse and trauma and violence. God knows all their names. I want to introduce you to two of them. This one is Sadma. আমার নাম সাদনা যখন ছোট ছিলাম তখন আমার ভয় বলে কিছু ছিল না আমি যখন ছোট ছিলাম তখন গাছে উঠতাম মাছ ধরতাম তো তখন এইসব জিনিসে আমার কোনো ভয় থাকতো না মানে তখন কোনো ভয় লাগতো না যে কে বকবে কে মারবে
আমার সঙ্গে যেটা হয়েছিল সেটা দেখে আমি খুব ভয় পেয়ে গেছিলাম আমার জীবনে কিছু হবে না আমার জীবনে কোনো দাম নেই আমি একটা মূল্যহীন মেয়ে হয়ে গেছি তখন এরকমই হতো আগের থেকে আমি অনেক বেশি সাহসী হয়ে গেছি I want to tell you about another girl, Elizabeth. Elizabeth um, is a remarkable young woman whom I came across recently. She has shy but laughing eyes, and she is slight. And she grew up in a village, small India in southern India, with wonderful Christian parents. She was part of a Christian family, um, went to church. Her, in fact, her dream was to gather information. And Bible college so she could work for her church and take part in mission. However, one day when Elizabeth was 12 years old, she was kidnapped and taken to the nearby city where she was placed in a brothel. And every day of every week, for years on end, she served over 10 men every day sexually. She described the places she was held as being full of the smell of sweat and beer and smoke. And that was her teenage years. One day, uh, our team heard about a particular brothel and sent in an investigator. One of the things we do is we have some extremely brave people who work as undercover investigators. They go into places where it's suspected children are being held in slavery, and they're all tooled up with uh, hidden microphones and cameras, and they go to gather evidence because if the evidence can be gathered, the case can be made to the police and the district officials to go and do a rescue and to arrest perpetrators. They go and gather information. We'd heard about this particular brothel and an investigator went in there posing as a client, gathering information. Well, he gathered plenty of evidence of what was going on. And so over the next few weeks, a plan was made and a rescue was devised and carried out. Our team that went in on that day of rescue said this place was extraordinary. It was one of the darkest places they'd ever seen, physically and spiritually. It was a warehouse with just a bit like this, bare concrete floors and and brick walls and a little bit of plaster on the walls, but not much. And there were some partitions, but mostly it was partitioned with curtains just hanging down, separating off little cubicles, and in each little cubicle a girl was put to work. 
They started at the beginning and discovered suffering after suffering after suffering, moving from little cubicle to little cubicle, leading people to safety, capturing and arresting, the police arresting the uh, brothel keepers. They got deep into this brothel and they could hear sobbing behind a curtain. And as they gently pulled the curtain aside, they found the girl who we would later know as Elizabeth. She was curled up, scared. They'd been, she could hear the kerfuffle in the brothel and the, and the noise and the shouting and everything. And so she was just terrified. And she was curled up in the corner of her little cubicle. It took a long time to explain to her what was going on. It took a long time to give her confidence that she was going to be safe and looked after. This wasn't some other horror about to happen to her. And very, very slowly, she trusted and got up and came with our counsellor and aftercare worker. As they walk through the brothel and she finally begins to see that the owners, the people who'd beaten her and used her and abused her, were, um, had been arrested and taken away, and that the girls that had been put to work here were now sitting quietly um, in freedom. As the realisation of what was happening to her dawned on her, she began to really believe it. She turned to our aftercare worker, and she just said this. She said... I know where others are. You see, in the years that she'd been kept as a slave, she'd been moved around to different brothels every few months. And she remembered five places where children were being sold for sex. And over the next few weeks, she led our team to five other brothels to rescue other children who were being sold in that way. That is not the most awesome thing about Elizabeth's story. Although it is amazing that the abuser becomes the liberator, the abused becomes the liberator. It is am amazing that a little girl who has been horribly used has the courage to go free others, to go back into dark places, to free others. But the most amazing thing about Elizabeth is this. When she was coaxed out from hiding in the corner of her little cubicle, our team noticed that she'd scratched something in the wall. She'd scratched some words in the wall. And this is what she'd put on the wall. This is what she'd carved into the wall. She'd remembered it. She'd remembered it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I can't imagine a deeper valley of death. I can't imagine a deeper darkness. And yet... In that place, a little girl clung to her hope in Jesus, clung to her memory of a father in heaven who loved her and knew her and cared for her and kept hoping that he would send rescue. That is pretty amazing. And in Psalms, we shouldn't be surprised really because in Psalms it says, O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed so that those, for, those from earth may strike terror no more. 
These children are made in his image. Now for us, the most likely place we're likely we're going to encounter slavery is, I would hope, not walking into a brothel in, a, in India or Cambodia or Thailand or any of those places. The most likely place we're going to encounter slavery is the people who made our clothes or picked our food, processed it. That's where we are most likely to encounter slavery. And if you uh, go into the hub and to the IGM thing there, there's a little, there's a little uh, uh, exercise you can do, which is, which is all to do with how many slaves make our lifestyle possible. But the good news, because there is good news, is that God has always been looking to set the captives free and he's still looking for the people to say, let my people go. Our story, isn't it? Um, our Christian story is rooted in the story of Exodus, in the story of God's redemption for his people. And we know in that, in that story, Moses was minding his own business, running his business. He was out just on a day and God interrupted his life. And God interrupted him because he had a task for Moses to do. Moses had run away from Egypt um, because he'd seen injustice, tried to do something about it. It had gone horribly wrong. Many of us, I would imagine, have felt stirred at various points to do something about some injustice that God's opened our eyes to see. And it hasn't landed. It hasn't worked out well. And so Moses ran away and had got on with his ordinary life. And God interrupts him and God calls him to go back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh, the biggest slave owner of the day. God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Because God wanted that generation of Israelites in slavery to be the last generation in slavery. And I believe God's still calling his people to go to the modern-day pharaohs, the modern-day slave owners, and say, let my people go, because they are his people, Sadna, Elizabeth, the 150 others that will be sold while we're here. They are made by him in his image. He has hopes and dreams for them all. Jesus taught us that the devil tries to steal, kill, and destroy. And nothing steals, kills, and destroys like slavery. Nothing takes away dignity. Nothing destroys the image of God like slavery. And yet Jesus said, I have come to bring life. And he invites us to join his rescue mission. So why does slavery exist? It's really simple, sadly. Slavery exists because desperately vulnerable people meet violently greedy people who think they can get away with it. Desperately vulnerable people, often of the wrong caste or the wrong ethnic group, the despised ethnic group, or the despised gender, or the very poor, very vulnerable people meet violently greedy people, people who are happy to profit from their suffering. And those violently greedy people do it because they think they can get away with it. Slavery will end because desperately vulnerable people meet violently greedy people who cannot get away with it. There was a lady who um, 
was, uh, she's just moved jobs, but she was the uh, anti-slavery commissioner for Kent and Essex Police. And she uh, said to me uh, a couple of years ago now, she said to me that in those police areas, the, the um, three top organized crime activities by value were, number one, what do you think number one was? Most profitable um, organized crime activity. Drugs, of course it is. We all know about drugs, doesn't it? Um, number three most profitable organized crime activity really surprised me. Any guesses what number three was? Car washes, no. Any else? Sorry? Cigarette smuggling, no, although very important. This one scared me. It was arms dealing. Smuggling of weapons into the UK. So number, that was number three. Number two was people trafficking for slavery. The thing that was chilling about what she said was, if you're, if you're a, a gang, if you're a criminal and you're doing drugs or, or weapons, you've got a lot of people after you. The police are really interested. Lots of activity after you about those things. If you're smuggling people, not so much. Not so much. And she was saying that her job was to shift the dial so that the people who were smuggling people felt as scared of the police as the people doing drugs or weapons. So our model is really simple. We have a very simple theory of change. When laws are enforced, the violence stops. When people don't think they get away with it, the violence stops. So now we're going to get a little bit geeky, so stick with me. We're going to go into details about how you stop, how you, how you enforce laws. So we, um, what we do, and this is the model that has really paid off, that would work, that works all over the world, is you start off by, well, first of all is, you start off by, by working with the government. You work with the police. You work with the authorities because they're the people who have the right and the responsibility to enforce the law. And immediately you get people who say, oh, but it's all corrupt. What it? And there is huge corruption. We have this little rule of thumb. It's one of those rules of thumb that is utterly unscientific but works out almost all the time, you know. And the rule of thumb is that in any setting, about 20% of the police and the district officials and the, and the authorities will be utterly corrupt and colluding with traffickers, making a fortune. Slavery is worth $150 billion a year. There's lots of people having a little bit of that money. And about 20% of the people in any place would be utterly colluding and corrupt. About 20% of the people in any place, police officers and judges and, magistra and magistrates and uh, prosecutors and everything, about 20% of them are utterly appalled that slavery is going on in their, in their country. Utterly appalled that slavery is happening on their patch. And they will stand up and take great courage, with great courage to take action to stop it. And then you've got about 60% in the middle who just are overworked and underpaid and will go where the wind blows, you know? They're just getting through the day. So one of the things we do is find the 20% that really want to make a difference and cheer them on. Pray for them. We say to them, um, even in places which aren't particularly Christian, we say to them, we've got loads of churches. They'd love to pray for you, police commander so-and-so. 
What, what can we pray for? No one ever tells a police commander they'd like to, be pray, they'd like to pray for them. They usually just moan, you know? Then they say, what do you need? And sometimes it's really simple stuff in some very poor parts of the world. They need vehicles or petrol, or they need some resources to gather evidence, you know? So we work with the government authorities to find people like Elizabeth and Sadna constantly, provide justice and restore them. We have about uh, 3,500 people in our aftercare programs right now. Uh, today. We help bring prosecutions, work with the police to restrain criminals by bringing them to justice and repair the justice system so that the justice can provide, can be provided consistently and constantly for the poor. Do you know the UN estimate that 4 billion people live outside the rule of law? That 4 billion people on this planet, if something bad happened, either there's no police to call or calling the police would be a really bad idea. Can you imagine that? I mean, heaven forbid that any of us gets burgled while we're away this weekend. But if we were, we would call the police. And we might think the police were slow, or it took a, you know, it took a long time, or it wasn't terribly effective, but eventually stuff would happen. Four billion people don't have that option, and those people are the poorest people. Those people are the most vulnerable people. So part of our vision which we see all the way from Genesis through to Revelation, is how does society consistently and constantly provide protection to its most vulnerable people? How will it be that the widow and the orphan and the child, how will they be protected? So we do that model. I'm going to get a bit more geeky. So... Um, in fact, I'm not going to do that because we've said some of that. We repair the system by finding out what resources are needed. By training, we train about, uh, about 40,000 police officers um, in the last few years. By fighting corruption, one of the things we do actually is we make loads of noise about people doing good things and when people don't do good things. So when a police officer, a police commander has, has started freeing slaves, we do PR about them. We create award ceremonies to give them a posh night at a hotel and a nice statue to take home. And we get the media there, so they take photos. And suddenly, it's like we make noise about people doing good things. And it turns out that most people like a little bit of recognition. I mean, none of us, because we're Christians. But, the, um, but most people like a little bit of, oh, someone noticed. And when you start noticing people, they get more courage. And when you start noticing people, other people think, ah, oh, that's a way to get recognition and to get, and to get some uh, promotion and everything. So we do loads of that kind of stuff. And we demonstrate time and time again that a system can work. When we start working in a place, the first response is, you'll never do that here. No one cares about those people here. And then you work really hard for a couple of years to get the first case through a court system, see the first arrests and convictions, see the first rescues. And people start having hope. So what? We did, actually it was the Gates Foundation who um, paid for an academic study, set up an academic study to assess what goes on. 
and we then copied it in a couple of other cities, uh, many other cities, but in the Philippines in two other cities. So in, um, what this slide means is that in these three cities, so in Cebu in 2006, one in 15 of the people in the sex industry being sold for sex was children. Okay? So one in 15 of them were children. And in Manila, it was one in 12. And in uh, Pamanga, it was one in 11. So think about it. One in 10% of the children. 10% um, of the people in a brothel were children. So that's what it was when we started these studies. So four years later in Cebu, it was one in 65. It had gone down by 79%, and you can see the statistics. What we see is a massive reduction in children being abused and sold for sex by following the model I just outlined. A massive reduction. We thought, we thought we'd be doing well if we saw a 20% reduction. So this blew us away. The academic researchers said there were two reasons. They, they discerned two reasons for the success of this work. The first was that people who were buying and selling children for sex were now in prison and therefore not doing that. So that was, that was great. But there was a multiplier effect because suddenly we had made the business of buying and selling children for sex more dangerous for the traffickers. Do you remember the slide where I said slavery happens because vulnerable people meet violent, greedy people who think they can get away with it? Well, suddenly in these cities, they were wondering whether they'd get away with it. And it turns out that evil sex traders, uh, sex traffickers and slave traders are just as scared and lazy and nervous as the rest of us and don't wish to be in a Filipino prison labeled as a trafficker. So this is a cause of hope. And the reason that I have labored it like this is because the number one thing, when I do talks like this, the number one thing I am asked is, but you can never solve this. Nothing can change. How many of you have read a theologian called Walter Brueggemann? Anyone read it? Oh, few of us. Not many of us, which means I can paraphrase him to my heart's content. Walter Brueggemann is a very interesting Old Testament scholar, and he has this interesting idea. He says the devil's first attack against humanity is to steal our imagination. And what he means by that is, what the devil tries to say is, you'll never change. He says it to me. Those sins will never be got rid of. That relationship will never become a whole one of thriving hope. We lose our imagination. We lose our imagination that God can change things. And when it comes to some of the problems in the world, that's also true. So we think nothing will change. We can't fix it. It's too big. It's gone on too long. It's too difficult. It's too awful. And God speaks into that situation and says, no, because I died and rose again, death and destruction is not the end point. There is new life, and we as his people are called to be the community of people who bring that new life. We are the people who can imagine God breaking through. We are the, the people who the Holy Spirit will give imagination, or we commonly call it vision, that would change things. We are the people who can meet 
desperation and darkness with hope, aren't we? Because if we're not, to what degree are we really Christian? Because we follow the resurrected king who specializes in taking death and turning it into life. Let's go to Cambodia. This is Mean. She was 14 years old when she was sold into slavery. And uh, in the early 2000s, Cambodia was the ground zero for sexual exploitation. The statistics are hard because by their very nature, people aren't volunteering to fill in surveys. But the UN reckoned 15 to 30% of the Cambodian sex industry was under 15. It was the place at that time that foreign paedophiles flocked to. That's where all the sex tourism happened. And traffickers preyed on the poor, and the police system was not protecting the vulnerable. In fact, there were markets just around Phnom Penh, villages, excuse me, where you would go and children would be in cages or chained up to posts, and you would just choose who you wanted for sex. And they were all children from ethnic groups that no one cared about. They were all children from poor families that no one cared about. There was no power, there was no wealth, there was no protection at all. So we did those things that I was talking about, rescuing and restoring, restraining, repairing. We did that over many years, starting with one by one. In fact, when we started there, we were told by really senior international um, humanitarian people that you could not get a girl out of a brothel in Cambodia. The system was too corrupt, the money was too great, the criminals too violent. And so we just started one by one, investigating, rescuing, including Mien that I showed you a picture of. The local church decided to own the issue. Churches in Cambodia started praying, started caring, started teaching, started getting involved, started um, providing the kind of support for when slaves were rescued. And with each, with each rescue and with each conviction, a powerful message was sent out that God saw these people that God was on the side of the poor. We trained a whole new Cambodian police unit, which has since won global awards that was absolutely focused on anti-trafficking. They're really good at it, really good at it. So in 2015, after 14 years, only 0.1% of the Cambodian sex industry is made up of children not the 15 to 30%. Our God is in the business of changing society. Even in places where people say nothing can change, our God is bigger than that unbelief. Isn't he? Yes. Over the last 20 years, we've rescued over 47,000 people from slavery. It is possible. I'm coming into land. Wilberforce, you've heard of Wilberforce, haven't you? Wilberforce 
when he was leading the fight against the transatlantic slave trade, said three things are needed to end slavery, awareness, money, and prayer. You have made yourself aware, if you weren't before today, because out of all the interesting and exciting seminars you could have gone to, you could have had your marriage fixed in this 75 minutes. You could have learned how to do spiritual warfare in this 75 minutes. I went through the program and I wanted to go to all of the sessions in this 75 minutes. And you chose to come here to talk about, frankly, a disgusting subject. You've made yourselves aware. Many of you, I'm sure, give money generously. If you feel the urge to give money to this cause in the hub, you can find out how to do it. And I'd be very grateful for your money, but I want something more than your money. I covet your prayers. I joined, uh, I took over IJM uh, in the UK two, two and a half years ago. And uh, before I joined, I'm sure you've all done this, before I joined, I had all sorts of things that I felt God had told me about this new chapter of my life, some of which turned out to be utter fantasy, and some of which turned out to be true. <laughs> One of the true things that I felt was that I needed to raise more prayer than money. So I told my board that after they'd given me the job, I told my board that I was going to raise more prayer than money, and they went really quiet. And then one of them said, that's fine. You can raise lots of prayer. Just raise plenty of money as well. I'll tell you for why that was so important to me. Because slavery is one of the most abusive, violent ways that the devil tries to destroy people. There is a demonic power behind slavery that uses the greed and violence in people's hearts to sell, enslave, and abuse others, particularly the most vulnerable. And the truth is, if we're going to knock on the doors of sweatshops and brothels and factories, then we first need to be knocking on the door of heaven. If we're going to have investigators risking their lives going into uh, places of slavery to gather evidence, then those investigators need to be clothed with immense protection from our Father and enabling grace. It's a truism, isn't it? But I've come to believe it as being really true, by which I mean I grew up knowing this was true but didn't really believe it for many years. Any of you, you're all looking really holy now. Go on, look at each other. Doesn't everyone look holy in a meeting? So this is my confession. We can call it group therapy for me. That, so I grew up as a Christian knowing things were true but not really believing them. Yeah? No. So you're all looking holy like you've never done that. Um, and, this is one, and one of the things that I grew up knowing was true but I never really believed it was that prayer was the most important thing we could do. And I've come to know that that is true that while God gifts us and while God equips us and while we have our skills and that we must use our skills as diligently as we can, we must become as best as we can in whatever it is that we do, that while that is true, the devil is not imp that impressed with our brilliance. 
he has frankly seen better. The devil is not actually that impressed with our money. He's seen more of it. The devil is petrified of God's people coming in intimacy to their father and asking father to act. He has no weapon that can stand against that, which is why the enemy attacks the prayer meeting so much. Eddie Izzard, that well-known prophet, once said that he had to end slavery. We walk in the... For many reasons, but he never really got Christians because they took the awesome reality of speaking to the creator of heaven and earth and reduced it to mumbling in cold, dark buildings. Maybe, not our, maybe that's not our tradition, but lots of us struggle with the prayer meeting, don't we? It's a bit dull. It's a bit hard work. Lots of us struggle in our personal prayer life. Again, you're all doing that looking really holy thing. But for me, it's been a struggle. And it's a struggle because the enemy is, that's what the enemy is most scared of. So if I cover anything from you for being here for an hour and a quarter this morning, I covet your prayers. I covet your prayers. Because that is what, in the end, will end slavery. We made a little film about this uh, for some events last year, but the film and the content still are useful. Throughout history, God has called his people to end slavery. We walk steps of our forefathers. We stand alongside Moses and Wilberforce as a new generation against injustice. Wilberforce and his comrades campaigned and yearned, prayed and fast, gave and advocated, till the transatlantic slave trade was no more. Underpinned by prayer, the movement began. The slave trade eventually ended. People were freed and a new generation stood for justice. But it is not over. At the hands of man, slavery and violence has thrived in this world. Backs break in factories, chains rub skin raw, and young girls are locked behind doors. Generation after generation, this has continued. Millions of lives held in slavery. More than ever before. This is not God's plan. We have already seen God restore the broken. Entire communities have been rebuilt. God is inviting us to join in his work. And so we will pray for freedom, for justice. Until every man, child and woman is free, we ask for more. Until there is an end to slavery, we ask for more. Until it ends and never returns, we will keep asking for more. We believe that prayer is the work of justice. Prayer is the very heartbeat of justice. This September, over 40,000 churches around the world will join together to pray for freedom for slavery. Your church could be one of them. In IJM, we put this into practice. I always feel nervous saying this because... People who sometimes give us money think, what are you doing? And so, we, so I'll tell you what we do. We start every day. This is 1,100 IJM staff members around the world. 
everywhere they are, we start our working day with half an hour of personal prayer. It's not our quiet time, it's not our devotional time, it is the start of our working day when we bring the day into God's presence and we bring God into the day. That's the first thing of work we do every day. We then do some actual normal work for a few hours and then we stop and we do half an hour all together praying for the needs of the mission around the world, praying for a rescue that's happening or a court case that's stuck or a situation that needs breakthrough. We put that rhythm at the heart of our working life because we know that as amazing and awesome as we are, we are not awesome enough to end slavery. But as a community of spiritual formation, dependent on our Father, we are able to follow him in his mission. I've got one other thing I want, us to, I want to do, or actually two other things I want us to do, but I wanted to pause this moment. Are there any questions or thoughts or reflections that anybody wants to share? Let me just check. What time do we end? Oh, great. We've got loads of time. Good. Yes. Thank you, Natalie. That's really kind. Uh, my name's Ian. Uh, thanks for the talk. I feel a bit rude saying this, actually. Um, it seems to me that the, the model that you talk through, the rule of thumb, is fundamentally wrong. In that If you concentrate, well, if you give that the 20% at either side of your spectrum are ardent and going to do what they do, that you'd be better off concentrating on one of the apathetic 60? Yeah, great question. Really, not rude at all. Really great question. So um, the reason I put it like that is we've learned something right, which is that, so, so the, the question behind your question is, how do you get that 60% start behaving properly? How do you get them to move? And what we've discovered is the most, have I misunderstood your question? Sorry. If you could just say it in the microphone. No, I think you, under, you understand what I'm saying, but rather than concentrating on the whole 60%, if you just changed one person in that 60%. Yes. Great. So what I was going to say, what I was going on, sorry, I, did, I wanted to make sure I hadn't misunderstood or twisted your question. The, um, what we have learned is the way to do that is by championing the good 20%. So when we give, you know, Chief Inspector so-and-so an award or we do some PR around them or when we help them... Uh, get noticed by their peers and therefore get a promotion, that actually creates a drag towards the positive. Our experience has just been that's the most effective way to start moving. Um, so in Cambodia, the, the, since I talked about that, creating um, an elite force that got lots of global uh, accreditation, um, credit and... Um, Noticing. I can't think of the word for noticing. Yeah, recognition. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, that actually, in the end, created a force that dragged um, lots of other police officials up into thinking they could do that. It's an absolutely pragmatic judgment. That's just been our experience of how that works. It's a great question. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, 
let's make Natalie run. Yeah, I'm Amy. Um, I was just wondering, you've talked a lot about work you've done overseas. Have you got any stories you can tell us about work you've done in the UK? Uh, well, i tell you what I'm going to do is, rather than make Natalie run, I'm going to ask Natalie to tell you some stories in the UK, because she actually has done more in the UK than I have. Um, while she's just coming up, I'm going to tell you, though, the little thing we're working on at the moment is, what does a church-shaped solution to, to slavery in the UK actually look like? Um, and in particular, if you've got a little boy, say, from Vietnam who's rescued from a cannabis factory, completely disorientated, completely at sea, probably doesn't know who, they, who he can trust, who he does, but might not even know where he is, then actually we've got, a, we've got a, a, um, a welfare system which will provide some basic hygiene protections. If he gets into that system, he'll be in a safish place and he'll you know, be looked after at that kind of very basic level. But what that little boy needs is a family. He needs some people who will go into bat for him, who will work out what his health needs really are, work out what his education needs, how are we going to support him, So, who will love him. And if, he, if, if the right thing is for him to be returned back to his home, who's going to make sure that's as soft as landing as possible, as positive a thing as possible, rather than just putting him on a plane and handing him over, yeah? So we're working on some ideas around that about what... Because my, my guess is that churches, that is the sweet spot for churches, that actually we are really good at loving people, probably better than we even think we are, actually. But we are really good at loving people. And I think, what would it take... For, we've, we've seen what it happens when churches come together and say, we're going to deal with hunger in our community. And we've seen what happens when churches come together and say, we're going to deal with vulnerable people getting drunk on a Friday night and we're going to do street... But, you know, what if churches came together in a community and said, our community is going to be slave-free? So that certainly means spotting the signs of slavery. It certainly means working out how to work with the police and the social services and, and so on to do all of those things. But it also means providing a home for that vulnerable, abused person, walking with them, whether it's for a long time or a short time, Showing them that there is a father who knew them, who saw them, who cares for them. I'm preaching a different talk now, so I'm going to hand over to Natalie. Um, well, I'd say, obviously, speak to the guys from Hope at Home, because that's their ring. I'll be honest with you, we had no clue how we've got a spare room. Take someone in who's a survivor and support them with that one-on-one -on -one support, and you get a lot of support to do that, because that might sound like a really daunting task. So I'll let those guys, you can chat to them, they've got a stand in the hub. But also Just stand up. Why don't you stand up and wave at people? There you go. Go and talk to the people in the, in the fetchingly attractive blue T-shirts. Um, but, yeah, so one of the things we've done in Hastings is about five years ago, we approached our local police, and the modern slavery uh, bill was passing through Parliament, and we said to them, how can we work with you? We'd love to support you. Um, we kind of said some things that are a bit funny. We were like, we know you really care about justice, and some do. Some perhaps don't so much. We were like, and you are the justice bringers of our society. So we, just, we believe in a God of justice. How can we help you? And I'll be honest with you. I think at first they thought you just are some nutty Christians and you don't really, you know, what can you offer? But um, thankfully through a series of events, I might talk a little bit more about this tomorrow morning. I won't go into the long story now because I don't want to take too much of David's time. But um, basically in the end they said, well, 
we, we said to them, we give you training. I'll be honest with you, we had we would actually do that because we didn't know how to do training on how to spot the signs of human trafficking. My leader in my church jokes that I practically offered them a trip to the Caribbean if it was what would get them to work with us. It's not too far from the truth. But when um, they said... That they said, we'll have training then because we, we don't have any training. So we said to them, okay, we'll put on some training for you. We'll organize it all. We'll do the refreshments. We'll print all the handouts. We'll do everything you need. You just commit to getting 20 police officers there. They said, that's fine. We ended up with 94 people signed up for this training. Not just police, but five local authorities, local councils, our biggest housing association in the town, because all of them saw that the Modern Slavery Act was, was about to um, come to pass and that they would have to do more. And so we went with the line of, you know, you've got um, diminished resources, but you don't have diminished responsibilities. And as the church, we've got resources. And they look at you sometimes like you're nuts because they think of the roof fund for mom and things like that but I was like we can put some money to it we can put some people to it and honestly our police have been amazed to date we've now trained over 400 pe- uh, police officers council staff fire officers housing association officers even the guy responsible for taxi licensing in the town um, and not only that we've then trained 103 of them to then cascade that training through their organizations now we've gone in five years from our police saying behind the scenes, we don't really think slavery is an issue here. You know, we're a little coastal town, population about 90,000. In the five years we've been, since we started working with them, they've identified more than 400 people involved in slavery in Hastings and Rother, which is the neighbouring district to ours. And they would say, if you ask them, that King's Church Hastings has been at the heart of basically helping them to take the issue seriously and to tackle it, to arrest perpetrators, to rescue victims. And then, as a church, we're then doing befriending support for those survivors as well. So there's loads that you can do as a church, but I think it starts with... It's it's a similar model in a way. It actually starts with saying to your local um, police officers, "We're, uh, we're the church and we want to support you. We want to help you. We're for you actually, because, you know, they do get a lot of stick, as David said, and just actually offering, they might look at you like you're nuts at first, but actually, once you offer them something tangible, and they see the quality of it, and they see that you're faithful, and that you're reliable, and that you are genuinely for their good, it's amazing what doors it opens up. Thank you so much. Give her a round of applause, and not just for what she just said, but because... um, because what, what they've done in Hastings, and Natalie's work there, is famous in this world of anti-slavery work. And one of the things that's most exciting about that story is that they started by serving. We follow a lord who defined leadership as service, didn't he? And um, I, I set up something, it's a slight aside, but I set up something called Cinnamon Network, which some of you might have come across. And we got... We, we felt that, there was, that the church could take a more aggressive role in dealing with the problems in our society. And we, we did a proof concept. We got money from the government. We helped um, eight, over 800 churches start all sorts of projects, from food banks to work with the elderly and dis, uh, excluded young people and everything. Over 800 churches starting projects paid for by the government. Right, the reason the government paid for it, they gave seed money to start things, was because they were blown away by the fact that churches are really rich in two things that they can understand. We know we're rich in lots of other things, but two things they can understand. We have buildings 
and we have people who volunteer. They just didn't think we cared that much. They thought we cared about worship and prayer, and of course we do. But when we take that worship and that prayer in our rich life with Jesus and use that to bless the world, we are phenomenal. Had one council leader who up till then had been, had been a thorn in the side of Christians about equality stuff and all those kinds of things. And this council leader said, saw what churches were doing, and he said, if you come with the heart to serve this community, his words, I will make space for you at any table you want to be at. I'm going to ask Nicola to come up in a second. She doesn't know, so I'm going to give her a moment. Because just building onto that question um, about slavery here in the UK, I did a throwaway line right at the beginning of my talk saying the place where most of us will encounter slavery is in the goods we buy. 71% of UK companies believe that it's either definite or very likely that slavery is in their supply chain. And the question is, I know you're all admiring my flowery shirt. My daughter calls it my midlife crisis. Um, occasionally she says, please don't wear that shirt, just go buy a motorbike. And, um, um, but the question is, who made this shirt? Was there a little child who sewed the buttons on because their fingers were small? Who picked the cocoa? Who picked the tea? Who processed the fruit? That's where most of us will encounter slavery in our, in our society. We may encounter it in nail bars and in car washes and in other places like that, but for most of us, we will encounter most slavery in the thick or thought, yeah, right in the middle. Oh, oh, and just what they can discover in the hub. This is Nicola, who's one of my colleagues. Give her a round of applause because she didn't know I was going to make her do this. I'm terrified. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, so in the hub, we, um, we have set out a uh, dinner table. Um, so you can come and have a look at um, some of the items that you might encounter every single day, maybe even before 9am, um, where slavery could have existed somewhere in the supply chains. Um, so it could, whether it's the coffee that you drink or the prawns that you eat um, in your paella or even the rice, um, the material for your tablecloth. Um, yeah, so if you come and um, meet me or David today or um, our volunteer over the weekend, um, it would be great to have a chat with you and discover what else you could do um, to help make slave-free the normal. Thank you very much indeed. So, um, time for one last question maybe? Or comment? Or thought? Yeah, right in the middle. Oh, oh and there. Two more. You say, you say that you work with um, governments and authorities and police. How do you go on where there isn't the willingness? Uh, my question is based on experience of being in the brickfields in um, the Punjab, mm. uh, where there is not willingness for the... Uh, Dalits to be helped because they are the reserve army of labor that makes the whole state profitable. How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a really great question. 
And um, that's one of the reasons why I covet prayer so much, because in some of these situations, we need God to do a miracle. Uh, we, um, there was, I think in one of the videos I showed, one of the films I showed, you, there were children being rescued on a fishing boat. That was actually Lake Volta in Ghana. I don't remember if it was labeled on the film. Um, well, that's really interesting. So Lake Volta, largest, natu largest not natural at all, largest man-made lake in the world. Huge fishing um, industry there. Um, it was known that children were involved, uh, were enslaved in that, in that um, fleet to an extraordinary degree. There was no, exactly what you described, absolutely no will to deal with that. That was the economic model. That was the, um, that was the way the world worked. And uh, the local officials, um, as well as business leaders, all, were, all had a stake in, in this system staying as it was. We got licenses and permissions to work. They were rescinded. Our team there spent two years researching and praying, and we all were praying, but they were there doing research and praying before they found someone who would be prepared to actually work with us against slavery. That was a really hard two years. I, I tell that story because there's something about this that demands persistence. This is not a quick win. I haven't described a model that you can just land somewhere and next week things will be better. This is dealing with entrenched evil. It needs God's people in the community and around the world coming together to pray. It needs diligent hard work. It's spiritual warfare. And it takes time. The story in Cambodia was 14 years in the making. And as I said, when we started in Cambodia, Cambodia, people said, you can't do it here. It won't work. It won't work. There are places in the world today where we are starting, where we are seeing utter bleakness. No encouragement at all. But we know, we know, don't we, that when the sky gets dark and the enemy is laughing, that's just before the resurrection. And we can see a breakthrough. Thank you, what a great question. And there was a gentleman just here, yeah. Thank you, my name is Terry. Uh, just interested in thinking about the um, aspects of slavery that you've talked about, very particularly you've talked, I think, mainly about the sex slave trade uh, and rescuing girls. And I was just interested in regard to what happens uh, and how effective the rescuing of boys is. And also, I suppose, other aspects of the slave trade. And I'm sort of in my own mind thinking, is what your colleague has shared one of the most effective ways of combating that? Because I'm not sure that that is necessarily seen as illegal, uh, such as the sweatshops and the brickworks in the way that perhaps the slicks slave trade is. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, um, so the majority of slavery is not sex slavery. The majority of slavery is bonded labor, um, debt indebtedness. Um, it's children in factories and sweatshops and fishing boats and brick kilns, fat whole families in brick kilns and quarries, um, that kind of thing. And 
we have seen, um, so the majority of the people we rescue come from those backgrounds as well. Um, and we do, so for instance, uh, just a few weeks ago, there was a number of families rescued from a brick kiln in southern India. So the work that then clicks around them is what support do they need as a family? So often they've, they've been trafficked from a long way away, so how are they going to get home? Uh, what is at home? Who trafficked them? You know, is it, is it safe? It all gets really complicated. Um, we then think about their health needs. We then think about do they need vocational skills so that they can earn a living, so they reduce their vulnerability to being trafficked again. Um, we work with them legally because in India, uh, and actually in most countries we work in, there is a legal uh, document which frees you from debt. And if you've been enslaved or held in debt bondage, that cancels that bondage legally. So it's really important to have that piece of paper. So we help people get, these are often very illiterate people, help, help people get that piece of paper. Um, I could go on and on. Does that give it, is that... I want to th so Lord knows what I could have bargained her down. Anyone heard of Rue Paines? Okay, we're all far too old. But um, there's this guy who is a YouTube and uh, a music sensation called Rue Paines who created a music video, wrote a song for us and created a music video. I'm going to end on that. But before, one last story before we, I show that film. This is personal to me. And it's personal to me because 14 years ago, I was working with Tear Fund and I was in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I was working with Tear Fund local partners in Chiang Mai on nutrition and uh, uh, food security. And I'm walking down, at the end of the day, at seven o'clock in the evening, I remember it vividly, and I'm walking down a brightly lit road in the middle of Chiang Mai with restaurants and shops all open. And as I'm walking down this road with a female colleague, a young girl comes up to me and asks me if I want to have sex with her. And her opening price was the equivalent of seven pounds. So Lord knows what I could have bought to had I been so inclined. I was able to keep walking. She was not. She died in her early 20s of age, bit of the city. I don't know if you've had the experience where God uses something, even something momentary, even something fleeting, and it just changes your framework. And this little girl's face haunted me. Tear didn't really do work on slavery or trafficking or um, that kind of thing at that time. But I knew that the partners I was working with in Chiang Mai did. So I went to them and asked them about, I explained what had happened, and I asked them about this girl. I suppose I had the romantic idea that we could find this girl. Of course, we didn't find that girl. But they did some work and research about the bars in that area. And she almost certainly came from one of the hill tribes, a despised ethnic group. She didn't matter. She was probably between 14 and 16, because that was the age of the, the most common age of the girls in that part of town. And she will have worked there 
until either she was sold on or until she died. And she will have died in her early 20s. Her face haunted me. And I found myself that night in my room praying about the day and praying about her. I felt convicted. I felt convicted, although I do not know what I could have done. But I knew that I'd walked away. And I found myself praying. I don't know if you've ever done this, where you pray something, and then afterwards you think, oh my goodness, I just prayed that out loud to God. Because obviously if it's in our minds, he can't hear. And um, what I found myself praying was, Lord, I don't ever want to walk away again. I don't ever want to walk away again. A friend of mine rescued children uh, from, well, rescued families, actually, who were usually at work in brick kilns and quarries. And one day he uh, was leading a rescue in a quarry, and they'd done all the research, they all turned up on the day, the police, the social workers, the officials, the team, and they rescued over 100 people held in this quarry in slavery. Some of them had been there for decades. Terrible. They spent the day processing the people, working out who was who and what was going to happen to them. And at the end of the day, there were three little children left over. Didn't seem to belong to anyone. The kiln owners weren't talking. Everybody else, no one knew who they were. They'd just arrived a couple of months earlier. They, it was presumed they were siblings because they were together, but no one knew. But they were little. The oldest was maybe 12, little girl 12, 10, 8, that kind of age. So special arrangements had to be made. So a, a place was found that could take children, um, unaccompanied children, and my friend and a social worker put the children in the car and they started to go off to the place where they were going to stay. As they started driving, this little girl, the oldest girl, said, what's happening to us? What are, where are you taking us? What have we done wrong? Are you going to beat us? What are you going to make us do? And my friend and the social worker started explaining, no, none of that's going to happen. You're safe. You're going to be looked after. We've rescued you. You're going to be taken somewhere where you'll be fed and you'll be cared for. She fell silent. A little while later, she said again, don't beat us. Don't hurt us. We're sorry for whatever we did wrong. What's happening to us? And again, my friend and the social worker explained that no, they weren't going to be beaten. They were going to be cared for. That what had happened was wrong, but now things were going to get better, and she fell silent. She kept doing this, and eventually she piped up again, don't hurt us. What is it you want us to do? And my friend explained again, no, you're going to be taken somewhere where you'll be looked after. You'll be fed. You'll have clothes and food and a doctor will look at you, and we're going to try and find your family, and we're going to try and get you back into school, and you're going to have a chance at a different kind of life. You see, you've been held by people who abuse you and are violent towards you and make you work, and that's wrong. And what we do is we come and rescue people like that so you can have a new chance. The girl fell silent, and then she just said, what took you so long? What takes us so long? We can fix this scourge. We can go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. 
what takes us so long. I really appreciate you choosing to spend your time here. A short film, and that's the end. Thank you very much. Why don't we just thank David for um, speaking to us this morning. I'm sure he'll be around for a bit to chat, but you can also head over to the IJM stand as well um, and talk there. Uh, tomorrow in here, we're going to be looking at austerity and a coming crisis. Is poverty in our nation going to get worse? And if it is, what are we going to do about it? So we hope to see some of you back here tomorrow. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. God bless you.